the devil could invent no worse pestilence to destroy all the world and kill all the people there than the institution used to distribute and entrust Indians to the Spaniards. It was like entrusting Indians to a gang of devils or delivering herds of cattle to hungry wolves. The most cruel sort of tyranny that can be imagined, most worthy of infernal damnation. The Indians were prevented from receiving the Christian faith and religion. And since the Indians regard our God as the most cruel, unjust and pitiless God of all, the conversion of the Indians has been hindered. And it's become impossible to convert infinite numbers of infidels. That was the view of the Spanish friar Bartolomé de las Casas, who was Bishop of Chiapas in Mexico, um, writing in 1552. He's writing for a Spanish audience with the aim, partly successful, of persuading his authorities back home to rein in the abuses he's talking about. But his book also found an audience that he didn't intend. All of Spain's many enemies reveled in it, especially the Protestant readers of the unauthorized editions of his book, published in Latin and French and English and Dutch and German until deep into the 18th century. And these readers took his lessons to heart. When they ventured out into the new world for their powers, they were determined that they weren't going to repeat Spanish mistakes or commit Spanish crimes. That they would show the native peoples by the justice, the generosity of their behavior, that their Protestant gospel was different. So that where these people had been driven away from Catholicism, they would be drawn freely to the light of Protestantism. In this lecture, we're gonna find out how those earnest and noble intentions fared when they actually made landfall across the ocean and began to encounter Native American peoples for real. I'm not going to say that their good intentions actually made things worse, although in sometimes that plainly was the case. But I will say that we all know what the road to hell is paved with. European settlement and conquest in the Americas is led by two assertively Catholic kingdoms, Spain and Portugal. But before long, other imperialists are vying for a place in the sun. My story begins just a few years after Las Casas' book with a project which is rather wonderfully called Antarctic France. No penguins, I'm afraid. Antarctic here just refers to the southern hemisphere. In 1555, a flamboyant, swashbuckling, unreliable French nobleman named Nicolas Durand, Sieur de, de Villagagnon, led a party of colonists to an island in Guanabara Bay, what's now the site of the city of Rio de Janeiro. This is an encroachment, not just on the Portuguese empire, but on the Catholic presence in the Americas. Protestantism is on the march in France, in the 1550s, especially amongst the nobility. No less a person than the Admiral of France, who was in charge of overseas expeditions, had recently converted. Antarctic France is his project, and Villagagnon, the project's leader, is at least sympathetic to the new religion. 
part of the aim is to establish a Protestant foothold in the new world. And it's in this spirit that in 1556, soon after the colonists have arrived, Villegagnon writes to John Calvin, the French Protestant leader in Geneva, asking for support. The first colonists he'd taken had mostly been convicts who had chosen to risk their lives across the ocean in return for an eventual promise of freedom. Um, it turns out that not all of them were very salubrious characters. Villegagnon, who seems to have known Calvin from his student days, hoped that the next boatloads might bring some moral improvement with them. And the Genevans send 14 colonists to join the next flotilla, two of them ordained Calvinist ministers. And they do so giving thanks for the extension of the realm of Christ into so distant a country, even among a nation that was completely ignorant of the true God. Because, of course, that's the other aim of this project. Thanks to Bartolome de las Casas, everybody now knows how atrociously Catholics treat Native Americans. Here's the chance to show the world how it should be done. The Genevans and the rest, the next flotilla, arrived in March 1557. The day they arrive, with Villegagnon's blessing, they lead the colony in worship. To the best of our knowledge, this is the first Protestant service ever held in the Western Hemisphere. Almost as quickly, they established contact with the Tupi Indians on the mainland. One of the Genevans, a man named Jean de Lery, wrote a detailed and vivid memoir of their work, published some years later. Lerry is impressed by the Tupi, strong, healthy, brave, skillful masters of their world. Like every European who commented on Native Americans, he talks at length about their customary nudity or near nudity. But he also argues that the effect of the paints and wigs and frills of France was far more lascivious. Um, he says almost with a note of disappointment. This crude nakedness is much less alluring than one might expect. But he also made it his business to talk to them through interpreters about Christianity. In our conversations with them, when it seemed the right moment, we would say to them that we believed in a sole and sovereign God, creator of the world, who as he made heaven and earth with all things contained therein, also now governs and disposes of the whole, as it pleases him to do. And he says that this news amazed them and that he tried in various ways to build on it, promising, for example, that the Christian God could deliver them from evil spirits better than their own rights could. He thought they were making progress. The Tupi liked it when he sang the Psalms. On one occasion, he and his comrades were received in a Tupi village. Before they ate, the Frenchman said grace, and one of their hosts asked them, what does this mean, this way of doing things, taking off your hat and remaining silent except for one speaker? To whom was all that addressed? And Larry seized the moment, explained that they were praying to the invisible God who knows what's in our hearts, who created the world, who brought them safely across the sea and spared them, the French, from fear of the devil. And this led to a two-hour-long discussion, by the end of which, Larry believed, by the efficacy that God gave to our words, the Tupi were so stirred that several of them promised to live as we taught them and even to leave off eating the human flesh of their enemies. Uh, ritual cannibalism was unsurprisingly one of the indigenous customs which the French found most problematic. So they retired to bed 
And then during the night, they were awakened when, as he says, we heard them singing together that in order to avenge themselves on their enemies, they must capture and eat more of them than they'd ever done before. Which seemed to Larry to exemplify the inconstancy of this poor people. But still, he wrote, I am of the opinion that if we'd stayed longer in that country, we would have drawn and won some of them to Christ. I've dwelt on that first account of the encounter between Protestants and Native Americans because it almost contains the, the whole story of the next two and a half centuries in a nutshell. The way the relationship mixes wary pragmatism and idealism, fear and hope. If Larry's warmth towards his hosts is striking, there are darker undercurrents. Um, if Europeans kept commenting on the Native Americans' nudity, that's not just prurient fascination. These people, like all humans, were descendants of Adam and Eve, who'd been naked in the garden and hadn't been ashamed. Columbus himself, when he found near-naked people living in a tropical paradise, wondered if he had found a new Eden, populated by uncorrupted humanity. Nobody exactly believed that anymore by this time. Uh, Protestants certainly think these people are sunk in sin and error. But there's still a tendency to idealize them, both their physical perfection and their simple virtues. And there is a strong element of condescension in all of this. Native Americans are seen as childlike, both pure and primitive. And of course, putting them on a pedestal like this sets them up for a fall when inevitably they turn out not to be two-dimensional paragons of noble, noble savagery, people who've idealized them can feel betrayed and swing rapidly to the opposite view that they're scarcely human beings at all. And mixed in with that idealistic condescension is another double-edged emotion, and that is pity. This poor people, Larry called them, that's a note that's going to be struck again and again for centuries. Europeans pity the Native Americans, their plight, ravaged by disease, oppressed by the Spanish, exploited by traders. They pity their material degradation, as they see it. I mean, nakedness in the biblical tradition is a, a sign of poverty and of need as well as of innocence. Europeans are forcibly struck by what seems to them absolute poverty. People scrabbling a bare living from the forests who don't realise how much better their lives would be in every way if they abandoned their savage ways, farmed like Europeans, and modelled themselves on their newly arrived saviours. But worst of all is this spiritual darkness. Unable, unwilling to open their eyes to see the light of the gospel that would save them, Christian hearts cried out to see it. I don't mean to mock the compassion behind these sentiments. The instinct to offer help to those who need it as according to your own lights is a good thing. But this compassion was mixed with blithe self-satisfaction and self-importance and quite untroubled by the less fashionable Christian virtue of humility. And as a result, the effects of this pity could be cruel indeed. But Larry's encounters with the Tupi set a pattern in another much more obvious sense, which is that they were, caught, they were cut short. Villegagnon soon fell out dramatically with his inflexible Calvinist 
arrival, uh, new arrivals. They're expelled from the colony, and then in 1560, the whole experiment is snuffed out when the Portuguese reconquer it. And this is going to be a repeated pattern for Protestant colonial ventures. We tend to think of the European colonization of the New World as an unstoppable force. But for a long time, it felt very shaky. Formidably difficult physical environments, persistent hostility from the Spanish and the Portuguese, and periodic resistance from Native Americans meant that every colonial settlement of the 16th and 17th centuries struggled, and many of them failed. Two further attempted French Protestant colonies in the 1560s in what are now South Carolina and Florida proved short-lived. One of them abandoned within a year by the colonists on the brink of starvation. The other one discovered and almost entirely massacred by the Spanish. The first English settlement at Roanoke in in, in the Carolinas in the 1580s disappeared in circumstances that are still mysterious. The next attempt at Jamestown in Virginia from 1607 did endure, but it was a close-run thing. Over 80% of the first colonists had died from starvation and disease by 1610. At that point, it's assistance from the local Powhatan people that's decisive in saving their lives. But by 1622, relations with the Powhatan had soured to the point when there's there's a concerted attempt to wipe the settlers out a quarter or more of the colonists are killed in coordinated surprise attacks. Further north in New England, fully half of the famous group of so-called pilgrims who arrived at Plymouth Rock on the Mayflower in 1620 died in the first winter. The colony of New Sweden in what's now Delaware was conquered by the Dutch. Their colony of New Netherland in turn was conquered by the English. The prize Dutch colony though was in Brazil, where the Dutch established a very substantial and lucrative territory from the 1620s onwards, before the whole territory fell back into Portuguese hands by the mid-1650s. Most quixotic of all, in the 1690s, Scotland sunk an unwise amount of money into a colony at Darien in modern Panama, the tempting prospect of controlling porterage across the isthmus led them to overlook the unforgiving climate and the even more unforgiving Spanish. Two and a half thousand Scottish settlers set off, as many as 2,000 of them died from epidemics, malnutrition and war. One of the survivors, who's a minister sent with the colonists, wrote an account strikingly similar to Jean de Lery's narrative 140 years earlier. He and his colleagues described setting out into the the countryside to visit the villages of the Guna people, describing the hospitality that they received despite the lack of any common language. They made a point of holding collective Presbyterian worship in the presence of their native hosts, which he wrote they didn't disturb but sat with grave silence all the time. The Guna learnt that the Scots kept one day in seven with pious solemnity, And he remembered several of them came to our sermons to see our fashion and carry themselves very decently. There might be some hope of doing good among them if we had any that had their language. But the Spanish snuffed this incursion out before it could properly start. In the surrender, the Scots tried hard to secure an agreement that the Guna who had helped them would not face reprisals. But the Spanish general refused to give more than vague, unwritten promises and became angry when the Scots tried to press the point. 
even established colonies were fragile. In the 1670s, there's a real possibility that the Massachusetts colony is going to be destroyed in the so-called King Philip's War, in which the Wampanoag chief Metacom, whom the English called Philip, led a coordinated attack in which over a dozen settler towns are completely destroyed. Into the 18th century, the growing French presence in North America, moving south from Quebec and north from Louisiana, with Jesuit missionaries in the vanguard winning native peoples over to the French and Catholic interest, threatens the British presence on the eastern seaboard. The War of 1754 to 63 that Americans remember as the French and Indian War was well named. The native allies of the French were formidable and a British defeat was very possible. So this history of vulnerability in which the native peoples could switch in a moment from being poor, pitiable wretches and exemplars of childlike virtues to being potential saviors whose help was desperately sought or a mortal threat capable of, of, of ending a colony's existence. That's a vital context for understanding the religious approach to them. Our settlers arrived keen to win converts among the native people and to do it with respect and with kindness, not like the Spanish. But their first priority always had to be how to survive the next winter and the next wave of attacks, wherever it was coming from. In dealing with native peoples, security is always the first concern, both in order to win them as allies and to ensure that if a conflict did arise, the settlers would be able to make these godless wretches pay for their barbarism and treachery towards good Christians who'd only ever shown them friendship. We can put the policies adopted by these Protestant colonists towards their native neighbours, especially in relation to the hope to convert them, into three broad phases. And the first is the phase of alluring. Remember, these settlers have been raised on a diet of Las Casas and other atrocity stories about the Spanish. They're determined not to repeat them. They're not going to come as conquerors, but as traders, as allies, to support the oppressed native peoples against their Spanish conquerors. Protestants knew, almost intuitively they knew, that the new world must be filled with people who are yearning to throw off the Spanish yoke, desperate for allies. And so a league with those people, sealed by the true Protestant gospel, could achieve almost limitless things. You could break the power of Spain, spread God's kingdom to the new world, give the Protestant powers a privileged place in trading with these grateful allies. Allies who could probably be persuaded to submit themselves to English or Dutch sovereignty because you know, in their childlike barbarism, they're plainly incapable of ruling themselves. And all at up minimal upfront financial cost. Very appealing deal. Protestant expeditions to the New World often described themselves as liberators. Maybe the most quixotic example of this is the pair of Dutch attempts to spark an anti-Spanish revolt in Western South America. A fleet of 11 heavy warships sailed from the Netherlands for Peru in 1623 armed with letters from the Dutch government offering a comprehensive alliance to more or less anyone who was interested. 
The expedition fails either to make contact with any Native Americans or to seize any Spanish treasure ships, and they return with heavy losses after a fruitless three-year circumnavigation. Undeterred, the Dutch immediately begin planning a second expedition. After many delays and accompanied by sky-high expectations, they set sail in 1642 under the command of this gent. They round Cape Horn, they make landfall in Chile, where there had recently been violent resistance to Spanish rule. A group of Chileans come aboard the Dutch ships, bringing the head of a Spaniard with them as a token of their goodwill. And they ask for transport 200 miles up the coast for a group of some 500 of them. The Dutch are happy to arrive, to, to oblige, and when they arrive, they propose a formal alliance with this, this group of people. Stressing the commercial benefits to both sides, they offer to sell their new friends' firearms, and they soft-pedal the religious question. But they do make the mistake of mentioning something about access to gold mines. And the Chileans, who had heard this song from Europeans before, promptly pull the plug on the whole arrangement. Two ruinously expensive expeditions have achieved precisely nothing. That is the extreme version of this story. The pattern in the early French and English colonies in North America is more typical. Here, the Spanish are a somewhat more distant threat. The allurement that the colonists propose to offer to their native neighbours is of a more idealistic kind. The regulations of all of these early colonies, ones like these for Virginia, are full of insistence that the colonists must treat the native peoples with scrupulous regard. Anyone who steals from or injures them is to be punished in public with exemplary cruelty. The rules also insist that land for settlements must be leased or bought from native peoples, never simply seized, even if native peoples don't quite understand what Europeans mean by buying land. Part of the reason for this punctilious fairness is, is just pragmatism. These are fragile colonies that cannot afford to make enemies. But this is also how they understand their purpose. They're going to allure Native Americans into alliance and ultimately into conversion by proving themselves and their gospel the opposite of Spain's brutal religion. These laws issued for the Jamestown colony in 1612 include a prayer which was to be read every morning and evening by the captain of the watch. And in this, he prays, Seeing, Lord, the highest end of our plantation here is to set up the standard and display the banner of Jesus Christ, even here where Satan's throne is, Lord. Let our labor be blessed in laboring the conversion of the heathen. And what labor does he mean? Not imposing the gospel on them, not even sending missionaries out amongst them. Instead, he prays, adorn us with the garments of justice, mercy, love, pity, faithfulness, humility, all virtues teach us to abhor all vice, that our lights may so shine before these heathen, that they may see our, uh, our good works and be brought to glorify thee, our heavenly Father. And he asked God to allow the colony to prosper, so that the heathen may never say to us, where now is your God? And the prayer finishes, by looking forward to the day when the heathen do know thee to be their God and Jesus Christ, their salvation. And they may say, blessed be the King and Prince of England and blessed be the English nation and blessed forever be the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth that sent them among us. 
When I first came across this kind of rhetoric from colonists, and there's a lot more in the same vein, I admit I was cynical. Because all they're actually proposing to do to win converts is to live godly lives and secure the prosperity of their own colony, which were things that they were already committed to doing for other reasons. So this can look like so much froth. But I have been persuaded to take it more seriously, and I hope you won't think me too soft-hearted and credulous for doing so. Because this fits absolutely with their understanding of why they'd come and how their gospel was going to be spread. They truly believe in the power of example, that this is the right way to do it and that it's going to work. When Jean de Lery and his comrades in Antarctic France made a point of demonstrating their religious practice before the Tupi, when the Scots and Darien do the same in the villages of the Guna, the point is to draw them towards what they think are the obvious virtues that they're modelling. And it's not just about piety. Because as the colonists see it, what sets them apart from the savages isn't just religion, it's civilization. And those two gifts, as they see them, are inextricably entwined. They come to offer both of them to these pitiable people in such desperate need. If only they could see how much better the lives of the colonists were. You know, their solid homes, their productive agriculture, their decent clothing, their cultured manners, their diet, their material wealth. Surely they'll be drawn to it. Surely they'll see it as better than running naked through the woods like beasts. The colonists offer civility for the native people's bodies, Christianity for their souls. It's a more than fair recompense for the little parcels of land that they persuade themselves that they've bought from them. I don't want to say that this never worked. Anti-Spanish alliances weren't imaginary. The main basis of the Dutch occupation of Brazil was an alliance with the Tupi people, the same grouping who'd cautiously welcomed the French a century earlier. Friendly as they were towards Dutch rule, the Tupi are more openly enthusiastic about embracing Protestantism than any Native American people of the era, with the possible exception of the Mohawks in the New York colony we'll come back to. If the Tupi don't exactly regard the Dutch as liberators, they are certainly better than the Portuguese. And adopting their religion, or at least politely accepting instruction in it, seemed like a sensible way to cement the alliance. But in general, the perplexed colonists found that their way of life did not attract the envious and grateful attention that they assumed it would. And when they pondered this problem, they found two obvious reasons for it. One was that, in fact, the behaviour of Christian settlers in the New World towards native peoples was not always marked by exemplary morality. It was common to lament the baleful influence of Indian traders. These are the, the freebooting individuals who spread beyond colonial settlements to trade for furs and other goods and who often provide the first contact with Europeans that native peoples have. Um, but even those in the colonies are not, you know, the colonies are, even in colonies that aren't staffed principally by convicts, um, not all of the young and wild and desperate people who choose to make such a risky journey are fully committed to quietly modelling exemplary Christian virtues when they get there. Las Casas' fear 
that nothing hindered Christianity's spread more than the behavior of Christians quickly becomes the conventional wisdom amongst Protestants as well. So you could blame the failure of allurement on the colonists themselves, but you can also blame it on the native peoples. They're too sunk in ignorance, in depravity, in sin, even to see what they need. Just showing them the truth doesn't work. It's like scattering seed on the desert. Without plowing or watering, nothing's going to grow. They are too wild. Before anything can be done for them or to them, they need to be cultivated. They need to be civilized by any means necessary. And so we move quite swiftly on to the second phase of the missionary effort, the phase of civilizing. You start to see schemes of this kind being discussed in Virginia in the 1610s, and they're still being pursued nearly two centuries later. Behind all of them is the assumption, and I'm here quoting this gent, Charles Inglis, a future Anglican bishop as late as 1770, but what he's saying could have been said by any number of people over more than 200 years. The assumption is that it is necessary to civilize savages before they can be converted to Christianity. In order to make them Christians, they must first be made men. We're no longer in the alluring business. The note of coercion here is unmistakable. What they mean by civilizing people can be divided into two ambitions, one broad and one focused. For the broad kind, let me quote a systematic scheme proposed by an enthusiast in Philadelphia in 1767. He suggests acquiring a substantial block of land, 50,000 acres or so, which could be partly settled by what he calls sober white families, consisting of farmers and tradesmen. And then he said, let a number of Indian families be induced to settle among them and let each family have a fixed property in a small plantation. For the first years, let them be assisted by the society, he's talking about a missionary society, with clothes, provisions, implements of husbandry for building, fishing, learning trades, etc. Let them be taught to build and lodge comfortably, to plough, plant, sow, and provide for winter. Let them be enticed by all this, not as a drudgery, but by a spirit of emulation, by giving premiums in proportion to the improvements they make, you know, paying them a little bit extra, till they're gradually brought to see and feel with how much more comfort, ease and security they can live in this way than in their vagrant, unsettled condition. He accepts it's going to take time. But the result would be the instruction of children at schools in all sorts of manual or mechanic employments will become easy and the more aged, by having fixed habitations, will also be brought to listen to the blessed gospel. And at length, by the blessing of God, it's to be hoped numbers of young Indians animated with the gospel, conscious of the sweets of improved life, inflamed with a sacred, perhaps apostolic zeal to communicate these blessings to their countrymen, might go forth and form like colonies in different parts, still further and further through this vast continent. Most Protestant settlers who bothered to think about the subject rapidly concluded that until native peoples could be induced or compelled to live in fixed habitations and adopt settled agriculture on the European model, any thought of Christianizing them 
was hopeless. In which case, before the gospel could be preached, their way of life had to be changed, if necessary, by force. There are obviously mixed motives in this. Take a scheme that was set up in Virginia in 1654. Native Americans were offered a bounty for killing wolves. For every eight wolves' heads that they deliver to the colonial authorities, they're going to be paid with one cow. So this is obviously a, a pragmatic attempt to exterminate predators. But it's also explicitly framed as a religious project. Giving them cows will encourage them towards settled agriculture and get them to respect European-style property rights. But two things to notice about this scheme. First of all, a rapidly expanding colony had its own selfish reasons for wanting to confine its native neighbours to fixed patches of land and to soften their warlike ways. And second, almost too obvious to point out, it didn't work. The Virginia Wolves scheme is abandoned after 15 years. On some other occasions, native peoples are ushered or forcibly relocated onto patches of land, but the results are rarely promising. There is one well-known partial exception that I'll come back to in a minute. I said there were two ways that the civilizing mission could work, a broad way that's trying to reshape the whole way of life, but there's also a more focused way, and at the heart of this is education. The core idea here is again articulated as early as the 1610s and in many times and many contexts thereafter. If, as most settlers quickly concluded, Native American adults were too sunk in ignorance and corruption to be reached, the cycle of sin could be, must be, broken intergenerationally. If even only a few children, ideally boys of high status within the society, but at a pinch, you can work with anyone, if they can be brought into the colonists' world at a young age, and given an intensive education, then they could be the conduit through which saving grace could flow to the whole continent. They'd learn the colonists' language while retaining knowledge of their own native tongue and learning to write it. They'd learn the benefits of a civilized way of life. And of course, they'd learn the Christian gospel, receive baptism, and the brightest and most faithful of them would take it back to their own people. That way, a single spark might set the whole continent aflame. What's most appealing about this vision is the genuine conviction that a Native American mission ought to be led and governed by Native Americans. There is a real willingness there to relinquish control, which is only partly driven by the determination to do the whole thing on the cheap. But there are also formidable problems en route to that destination. In 1619, King James I authorizes fundraising in England to erect and build a college in Virginia for the training and bringing up of infidels' children to the true knowledge of God and understanding of righteousness. The following year, an anonymous English donor who with Calvinist panache simply signed himself dust and ashes, donated 500 pounds towards the project. To be used, he said, for the maintenance of a convenient number of young Indians taken at the age of seven years or younger and instructed in the reading and understanding of the principles of Christian religion until the age of 12 years. This project is brought to an abrupt end by the Powhatan Massacre of 1622. After that, Virginians tended to regard their native neighbours as enemies rather than as conversion fodder. 
But when William and Mary College is eventually established in Virginia in 1693, educating native children is supposed to be one of its main purposes. By then, Harvard College is nearly 60 years old, and it, for a time, had also had an Indian college within its structure. Like most such projects, it failed after a few years. The closest we get to an exception to that is Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. That's founded by a Congregationalist minister in 1769 to put a, an Indian charity school that he'd been running for 15 years onto a, form, a, a firmer footing. Dartmouth's Royal Charter commits it to the education and instruction of youth of the Indian tribes of this land in reading, writing, and all parts of learning, which shall appear necessary and expedient for civilizing and Christianizing children of pagans. The success was in creating an enduring institution that's now part of the Ivy League, but the price was that native education dropped out of its purposes very quickly. The essential problem with all of these schemes is foreshadowed in that ominous turn of phrase from our anonymous donor from 1620, children to be taken at the age of seven. I mean, we should remember that the norm in European society at this era was for children to be sent to grammar school or apprenticeships or to domestic service at a young age. This may be why Europeans are so persistently frustrated, surprised, genuinely puzzled by the inexplicable reluctance of Native American families to send their children away to these institutions. We might perhaps find it easier to understand that parents might not like the idea of having children kept deliberately separate and incommunicado from them, or of having your children systematically inculcated with alien values and customs. Um, there's also a persistent concern that children sent to such institutions would either die from disease or malnutrition, or that they would be sold into slavery. Um, the organisers indignantly denied that any such thing was true, but occasionally it was. Um, in Dutch Brazil in 1641, the colonial government makes a concerted push for Dutch Christian education for their Tupi allies. Two ministers are sent out from the Netherlands to run a school, bringing their own children with them and several other Dutch children in order to form a, the, the backbone of the new institution. An abandoned Portuguese building is found, a substantial amount of money is spent remodeling it into a residential school, as well as providing a barracks for the teacher's security, which is maybe already not a good sign. Astonishingly, though, it seems that at no point did anyone ask whether any of the Tupi were actually willing to send their children to such an establishment. And as friendly as the Tupi were to the Dutch, they make it clear that no children will be forthcoming. In Virginia, in the 1710s, the colony's lieutenant governor, Alexander Spotswood, is an enthusiast for missionary education. Confronting the problem, that, as he put it, they are of so suspicious a nature that they could never be persuaded to let their children stay. He has a clever solution. The certain native tribes paid tribute regularly to the colonial government. Their tribute, he agrees, can be cancelled if they are willing to send their children to William and Mary College instead. And this sort of works. At one point, there are 17 such children at the college. But the fact that Spotswood in his letters routinely refers to them as hostages perhaps tells us everything that we need to know. At least by then, the enthusiasm for another idea that's routinely suggested by micromanaging donors back home was fading. 
that is, that, that a selection of promising native children might be sent back to Europe for their education. This is tried on a number of occasions, but of course it's much more expensive than making arrangements closer to home, quite apart from the frustrating tendency of young Native Americans exposed to the full panoply of European pathogens to die on the voyage or shortly after their arrival. Even so, you keep finding well-intentioned philanthropists pressing this idea. From what I've said so far, you might get the impression that these civilizing missions fail completely. But the truth is worse. Some of them are just successful enough to be misleading. The best-known missionary enterprise of all is launched in Massachusetts in the mid-1640s by the Congregationalist minister John Eliot, known in his own lifetime as the Apostle of the Indians. He stumbles into the mission field almost by accident, but he does, once, once the bug has bitten him, really throw himself into it. He masters the Algonquin language, which I'm told is not easy. Um, in the process, he became the Protestant world's first missionary celebrity. The string of pamphlets which celebrated, exaggerated his achievements, ended up bringing in donations worth over 15,000 pounds within a decade. And a lot of that money, the bulk of it, is spent on what he called the Indian Library. This is a missionary educational project par excellence, a wave of printing in the Algonquin language. The centerpiece is this book, the first complete Bible ever printed in the Americas. Meanwhile, he'd been winning some hundreds of converts who were known as praying Indians. And, and this is central to his mission. They are then settled in a series of so-called praying towns where they can imitate and learn the European way of life and gather around a church. By 1675, there are no less than 14 of these praying towns in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, total population of some 2,500 people. That's about a fifth of the native population of the colony. This genuinely does stand out as the most successful Native American mission of the century, so it feels churlish of me to pick holes in it, but I'm afraid I'm going to. First of all, in a pattern that we will become familiar with in other settings, the enormous achievement of the Indian Library has a whiff of the white elephant about it. Um, that population of some 2,500 native converts was provided with over 4,000 Algonquin New Testaments and over 3,000 complete Bibles, despite the fact that uh, perhaps only a quarter or a third of them were in any way literate. And secondly, these praying towns rapidly started to look less like the future of the Native American people and more like open prisons, or to use Lieutenant Governor Spotswood's term, hostages. As the settler population surges, the pressure on the lands held by the praying towns grows steadily. There's a string of lawsuits between settlers and praying Indians in the 1660s, 1670s, which indicate that the facts on the ground are changing faster than even the most conscientious courts could keep up with. And then comes King Philip's War, that catastrophic native settler conflict in the late 1670s. And the praying Indians find themselves caught in the crossfire, distrusted, targeted by both sides. There's a series of atrocities against Christian converts by settlers, especially in the first year of the conflict. The colonial authorities try to punish those responsible, but juries composed of settlers are almost never willing to convict. And the praying towns are for a while completely shut down. 
their populations are relocated to secure locations, which effectively function as internment camps. When they are allowed to be re-established in 1677, only four of the 14 pre-war towns are re-established. And at this point, all Native Americans in the colony, Christian or not, are required to be confined to those sites. These have now become reservations. Eliot and his few allies protested about this, but whether or not he's a celebrity, his fellow colonists are no longer interested in listening to Indian lovers. So the problem with the civilizing mission isn't simply that it often didn't work, but that when it did work, it was a trap. The idealistic vision of native peoples taking their place alongside their white brethren was just impossible in the context of voracious settler expansion. If there was ever a way that a truly independent and durable Protestant Native American culture could have been built, this was not it. And maybe there never was such a way. But if there was, the hints of it are in my third and final approach to Protestant missions. A few people in the 18th century move on from alluring and educating to accepting. Some enthusiasts for education begin to try to take it to the native population rather than bringing native children to them, moving to villages, moving to seasonal settlements, establishing missions and schools there. It's a fragmented stop-start process. Some early cases involved missionaries establishing themselves alongside garrisons being posted deep in native territories. That certainly provided security for understandably nervous missionaries, but it also, let's say, complicated their message. But some really did start trying to venture out on their own. The most celebrated of these is David Brainerd, who was sent to the Delaware Indians in New Jersey by a Scottish missionary agency in the 1740s and embeds himself deeply among them, winning some hundreds of converts before cementing his reputation with a tragically early death. A, a less dramatic but maybe more significant voice is Brainerd's contemporary Sir William Johnston, a formidable soldier of Irish extraction who in 1756 is made superintendent of Indian affairs for all of Britain's northern colonies. And Johnston is an enthusiast for Protestant missions, but he brings a refreshing realism to the subject. He is endlessly pestered by do-gooders peddling resettlement projects and insists that schemes like that are obnoxious to the Indians who have repeatedly declared their aversion to them. In practice, he, he suspects that schemes like this are usually about land hunger. Native peoples, in his experience, fear that if they are forced into fixed settlements, they will become a gloomy race and lose their abilities for hunting, etc., spend their time on idleness and hang upon the inhabitants for a wretched subsistence. When they see the fate of those who have been confined to praying towns, it hardly helps to win more converts over. He insists with a sort of military bluntness that civilizing projects have simply failed. Those Indians who are become in some measure civilized have hitherto derived no advantages from it. They're poor, abject, full of avarice, hypocrisy. They've imbibed all our vices without any of our good qualities and without retaining their former abilities for gaining a sustenance. And that final point is important to him. He's a soldier. He regards the native tribes allied to the British as military assets. He knows how vital they proved against, uh, during the war against the French. 
turning them into meek subsistence farmers was not even desirable. So he too is at least as colored by ulterior motives as the more conventional missionary voices we've heard. But with this difference, unlike any of the other people we've met, he actually values Native Americans for their abilities and their distinctive skills and sees them as potentially powerful allies of the British who could make a genuine contribution. It should be said that this third phase of the Protestant mission, what I'm calling the accepting phase, never achieves any kind of dominance. Brainerd is valorized, but not very much imitated. Johnson is hugely respected, but in the end, his advice doesn't carry the day. The closest he and his view come to success is a Pyrrhic victory. And this relates to the Mohawks of the New York colony. This is a, an early 19th century depiction of their 18th century settlements. The Mohawks are longtime allies of the British, and they're the focus of a pretty sustained Anglican missionary effort in the 18th century. A series of missionaries take up residence at their two main settlements. During the War of the 1750s, the principal missionary with the Mohawks, John Ogilvy, who's got a history of pushing back against naive or sinister civilizing projects, actually accompanies the Mohawks serving under British command as a military chaplain. He goes with them all the way to the siege of Quebec and preaches as he goes. The Mohawks became known to the British as the faithful Mohawks. And if you hear in that term a blurring of religious faith and political loyalty, you're right. Certainly for the colonial authorities and apparently for the Mohawks themselves, religious and political alliance were two sides of the same coin. The irony, of course, is that when the American Revolution erupted in the mid-1770s, the faithful Mohawks fought loyally for the British. As a result, after the British defeat, most of them were forced to leave the territory of the new United States altogether, establishing communities at what are still substantial reserves in Canada. Many of them then came to fight for Britain against the United States in the War of 1812. There, they also became the recipients of this book, the very first publication of the British and Foreign Bible Society in 1804, John's Gospel, translated into the Mohawk language. Not much of a reward for all that they'd been through, but both the faithful Mohawks and the Protestant missionaries who tried to serve them might be forgiven that in the context of what's becoming an unstoppable westward tide of settlers, this is the best approximation to success that was available. Thank you all very much. Were Protestant missionaries successful in distinguishing their goals from Spanish and French missionaries, were they any less oppressively colonial in their impact? Less oppressively colonial is a, is a big ask. They're different, they're, they're oppressively colonial in a different way. Um, and that's about as good as you're going to get, I'm afraid. Um, they, they do go about it differently to, to begin with, this hesitancy and insistence on kind of backing off and, and giving them space and just doing the exemplary thing. Um, means that in the early years of, of settlement, I mean, you see this especially in the British and Dutch colonies, but, but, but elsewhere, they are soft-peddling the religious issue, whereas if you look at the early years of Spanish-Portuguese settlement particularly, but there's similar things going on in, 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 in French Quebec and elsewhere, the, 
to begin with, these are very much missionary-led enterprises. So the, the, the prominence of the missionary effort at the beginning is, is, is different. There is a sense in the Protestant colonies that the missionaries, once they realize that just simply being and waiting for their virtues to be noticed ain't going to work, um, need to make more of an effort to, to, to catch up and throw themselves into the process. But in many ways, they're not as deeply implicated in the, the worst of what colonialism is doing as is, as is the case in the, in, in, in the Spanish-Portuguese colonies. Um, in some ways, that's not for want of trying. Um, and the, 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 the civilizing efforts, particularly, that many of them pursue are profoundly sinister. Um, but they're not throwing the same amount of resource behind it as is, as is the case in the Iberian settlements. Just following on from that, can you just say a little bit more about how these um, projects were, were resourced? And, um, because presumably it was different compared to the Iberian, where it was state-backed. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question about the, the, the financing of these, of, of, of these projects. Um, and this is one of the places where the, the Catholic missions have a huge institutional advantage um, through the, the existence of, of big bureaucracies. Of, I mean, the Catholic missions are, are always complaining about not having enough money as well. You know, missionaries are like academics. They never have enough money. Um, but you know, nevertheless, you know, with, with you know, bodies like the, you know, the religious orders, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, um, are able to draw on... Um, financial resources and institutional networks that the Protestants don't have because a lot of those resources have been seized by their state, by their governments at the Reformation. Um, this is sort of one of the prices that, you, that, that, that they pay for that. Um, it means that they're often forced instead to try to, to conjure up resources of their own from a standing start. So I mentioned the pamphlet campaigns about John Eliot's mission um, that end up raising substantial amounts of money or indeed the, you know, James I's um, collection to support a college in, in Virginia. So there's quite a lot of fundraising of that sort goes on, but it's very much in, in fits and starts. And you find institutions like the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, the Anglican missionary organization in the 18th century, is... You know, is living from hand to mouth. Never has enough money to do anything like the scale of, of, of projects that it would, that it wants to. In the Dutch world, you, you've also got quite a lot of resource ploughed into these efforts by the um, the trading companies, the West India Dutch West India Company, and its its more successful East India East Indies counterpart. Um, it's been a, there's been a good case made that the one of the main reasons that the Dutch West India Company goes bankrupt in the 1670s is that it's putting too much money into missionary projects and not enough into actually keeping its business going. Um, so there's, there's a real attempt to, to, to do that, to, to fund these projects off the back of commercial enterprises. One of the odd effects of that is it means that trading for these companies and pursuing the commercial projects that most of these colonies are based on can look like a missionary activity in its own right because the success of everything else you do depends on making that work, on making these, these settlements pay for themselves. 
it's a, it's a really interesting and important point that the financial basis of what they're doing is totally different from the, the, um, in, in what's happening in the Catholic world. The um, second most popular online question, which is a really interesting one, is um, do we have Native American views, literature or records, on how they saw the Dutch or English versus the Spanish and what they thought of the Christian zeal? Wasn't it surprising to them that converting them was so high on their agenda? We do have some sources, not many, and they're all deeply problematic. Um, a lot of what, I mean, finding and actually hearing the, the native voice in the sources that we've got is the sort of holy grail of historians of this, of this subject. Um, you are, of course, in, in all of these contexts, dealing with, with people who didn't have a literate culture at the point when the Europeans arrived. Um, and so you're dependent on oral history or on European recordings of conversations, and you never quite know how much of what's been said they really understand because of the extent to which all these... We're often not told when, whether an interpreter is being used. Um, very often it seems to be the case, but the interpreter is sort of written out of the, of the process. We do know of a few cases where interpreters get pulled up for... Um, having distorted what's, what, you know, what's, what's going on in a conversation, sometimes apparently maliciously. Um, so there's a whole set of problems about how effective communication is, 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 is really taking place. But I think there's a deeper issue which you know, comes to be a, a, a pervasive worry for, for missionaries that they don't know what to believe of what they're, what they're being told. The power imbalance in most circumstances, not all, is so extreme that when it becomes clear that they would like people to participate in these religious rites, then, well, yeah, okay, well, I'll turn up and do that. Um, and if they're being asked to, to make you know, declarations or, or, or to accept baptism or whatever it might be, and Protestants don't tend to push baptism early, um, but to send their children to schools, then then they'll they'll tend to do it because it's the you know or at least there's an impetus to do it because it's it's you know an, an easy way to keep these people happy. It may seem a little eccentric what they want you to do, but you know it seems 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 harmless. Um, actually, getting past them negotiating with settlers knowing whether people are just saying what they think wants to be heard. Um, very difficult. Then, of course, you do have cases, and this you know, increasingly becomes to be the case later on in, in the 18th century, of you know, articulate and, and serious um, Native American converts, but they are almost all converts, who are writing you know, autobiographical reflections on how they came to this point. But they're doing that for a European readership from a perspective of having been to a considerable degree enculturated into this European world. And again, there's a, there's a real problem of how, how much you can really accept this as a sort of from the heart set of statements. So yes, we have some, and it's very difficult to know quite how much of it we can, we can believe. 
I'm afraid that's all we have time for this evening, but um, I'm sure anyone in the hall, if you have further questions, um, Professor Ryrie will be very happy to take them afterwards. But in the meantime, can we thank you for another tremendous lecture? Thank you so much. <laughs>